As I mentioned before, this is the last Sunday class, last class meeting. And it's also the last unit sort of in, in, the, in the teaching plan. And the last unit is on another set of Christian concepts that, um, about the, the end of time, or the last days, or the fancy theological term is eschatology. Um, to get us started, Lauren's asked me to read from Revelation. Um, most, of, most of what I read will be from the, the fifth chapter of Revelation. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must, must take place after this. And then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, on which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them singing, To the one seated on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped.
Thank you, Matt. I love that chapter. It is a, it's such a, a beautiful poetic image, I think, of um, it captures so much theologically of what we've been talking about. Uh, I want to talk about specifically the eschaton, the end of times, this image that we see in Revelation. But what we see it here in Revelation is also about something that has already happened. So I want to think about that as well before we talk about the future. Um, so we have a handout that has been sent around. I, I want you to hold on to it and don't look at it too closely yet. We're going to reference it. Uh, but you can see here that it's we've largely divided up um, the moves of the drama, right? this history we have of God with us, into five acts, something like five acts. And we most recently covered Act 4, uh, which is the, the age of the church, the time of pneumatological indwelling, the time of the Spirit dwelling within us. Uh, and now we'll be moving into considering what new creation might hold for us. <clears throat> uh, so to, to review just a little bit about what we've said about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's presence in the church, um, there are three things I think are really important to remember when discerning the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works within us. And so this is, again, a bit of review. The first thing is that the Holy Spirit is always uh, best understood in light of Christ. So we get in trouble when we start splitting the Holy Spirit apart from the rest of the Trinity, I think. So to understand what is the Spirit doing in us, we have to look at what the Holy Spirit does in Christ. Um, we have received the same Spirit, the same power, and so the Spirit... Uh, is shaping us into Christ-likeness. So I would say um, one way we can remember that is by remembering that um, in what theologians call the Christ event, every bit of it is redemptive. So the incarnation, the way Christ lived, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and enthronement, that's the piece that we often leave out too. Um, every bit of that redeems us somehow. It's one thing we've said. And one way we might think of that um, and what's happening at the ascension uh, is a couple of things. And we see, that, again, this beautiful image of this in Revelation. Um, who is worthy to open the scroll, the book of life? No one except this one, the lamb that has been slain, the one that went through all the moves of the Christ event. Um, now... Humanity and divinity can know each other in a new way. That's what we see at Christ's ascension. So if you remember, um, in, in Scripture, the notion of heaven is kind of a shorthand for saying this is where God lives. This is God's dimension. It doesn't mean that it's uh, drastically apart from where we live. Uh, it's not opposed to where we live. But rather, there's a sense in which heaven and earth are meant to overlap. God is meant to live with us. God desires to live with us. Um, but that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't fully been accomplished, but it's going to be. So in the Ascension, we see something like Christ goes to be where God is. Um, and that declares two things. That declares, first of all, that he is king. Christ does rule over all things. It also declares that uh, God knows humanity in a new way. And the seal of that is the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. 
So uh, up until then, we see the Spirit working throughout the narrative, but now something new is happening. Now the Spirit can be poured out upon all flesh. Now we don't have to journey to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. We can worship right here together. So the Spirit is amongst us. Um, the other, so that's the first one is that the Spirit is Christological. We understand the Spirit in light of Christ. Uh, the Spirit that we have received forms us into Christ's likeness. And so point two is that the Spirit is always forming us in such a way that we are made for community. The Spirit's gifts are not individualistic. They certainly visit individuals, but they form us to do life together. And not just together as the church, but for the sake of the world. That's our purpose. Our ministry is one of reconciliation. Uh, You know, we heard the language of priesthood in Revelation 5. We are a priestly people. Um, What does a priesthood do? We uh, represent God to the world, and we represent the world to God. Now, the Spirit distributes spiritual gifts for God's work in every community of faith. So, in that sense, every community is charismatic. Not necessarily speaking in tongues, um, but doing the work of God in the world. And diversity matters for that, right? We all have different giftings. And so the Spirit gives us all the spiritual gifts for the work of God in the world. Uh, We pursue those gifts by living in certain ways, by praying, by engaging in acts of costly discipleship, by spending time in the Word, uh, by worshiping together, by receiving the sacraments, and by, I would say, living into mentoring relationships. So that's a really important piece of this. Um, And we also share the good news that this new reality has dawned. This is good news. Um, Christ is king. Um, Sin, evil, and death have been defeated. They have not yet been expelled, but they have been defeated. And we get to be a part of this movement. That's the good news. Um, And that's one reason why our baptism matters so much. Uh, Our baptism is our time of ordination into ministry. And our reception of the Lord's Supper is a celebration that's anticipating the end when all of this will be made complete. Okay, so point one there is that the Spirit is Christological. Point two is that the Spirit brings the church to birth. It's communal. The Spirit dwells in bodies, in communal bodies. And point three is that the Spirit enables us to live by the rules of God's future. Even as we live in the present, it enables us to live by the rules of the future. So how does it enable that in us? Um, This is kind of the, this gets into the question of salvation. How does salvation work? Um, First of all, we are, you know, there's this sort of three, you could think of tenses here, past, present, and future. Uh, The past tense of our salvation is our regeneration. We have been made, we've been sort of reoriented back towards God. Uh, We were on something like a downward spiral away from God, right? And it is as if because of what Christ has done, now God's spirit can be poured out upon us and we can be reoriented. So um, that has been, that reality has been given to all of us. But we have to freely take hold of that. We have to move into it. God doesn't force us to move towards God. So the process, the second piece of it is what's happening in the present, which is sanctification. 
Sanctification is the ongoing, messy, difficult process of submitting our will to God time and again through these painful processes of growth. But they are not only painful, they're also full of joy. And uh, by creating new habits in us, we become better and better at this. Of course, we always can experience times of regression as well. But uh, again, we're meant to do this together as a community. We uh, experience sanctification together. And the Spirit is forming us this way towards our glorification. That's the future. This is the future toward which we are being made new. The completion of our salvation. This will be our bodily resurrection by the power of the Spirit, fully conformed to the image of Christ. So um, we can think of this in terms of uh, the Spirit's presence as something like a down payment or a token of the future. Uh, of our future inheritance, which will be this full dwelling with God. The Spirit-filled church should make no pretense of being the kingdom. We are not the kingdom. Uh, The kingdom is yet to come, and it is coming. It's arriving. It is beyond the borders of the church. But uh, the church is something like, uh, because we are called into the task of priesthood, uh, we are something like the new Edenic temple. Uh, the site of reconciliation with God and humanity, which is meant to spread into all the world. We are very flawed. We don't always do this well. But um, I like to remind my students of this when, when we get to this point in our, when we're wrestling with all of this together. And they like to, it's really easy for us to talk about what's broken about the church. But um, if we think about the fact that there is so much good that the church does so much of the time, it's actually, uh, the church is a great gift. So for all of its flaws, uh, there's still a whole lot of good that happens. And there's still a whole lot of hope that we find in community with each other that we might take for granted, I think, sometimes, because it's, we're, it's easier for us. We're better at pointing out flaws, aren't we? Um, so I think uh, giving thanks for actually how remarkable it is that we can come together in moments like this, and encourage one another and find joy in each other's presence is, is quite an amazing thing. Um, so now we look to Act 5, this, this time when we're not really sure exactly what this will look like, but we have hints of it uh, in Scripture and in our imagination and in what we see in Christ's resurrection. And so I want us to think about what the chapter Matt read, um, along with what we find in Revelation 21, Verses 1 through 7. And I can read that for us. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. So as you listen to this, think about what's happening theologically. (coughs) Then I saw a new heaven... And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals, He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, 
and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Okay, so there's a lot happening here for us to unpack. I'll I'll give you a, a few things to think about as we're anticipating what this future might hold. Uh, First of all, this pronouncement, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I think we can think of this as a pronouncement that the goal has been realized. We saw this beginning where creation was made good but not perfect, made to emerge towards this dynamic future where God dwells with us and we freely choose God. Um, And God works tirelessly and creatively to see that come about. And now we see this image of that has been accomplished. The goal has been realized. A new earth where God fully dwells with humanity. And now a new chapter is beginning. In verse 7, there's also a promise of inheritance to those who conquer or overcome. Uh, We can think of this as echoing the promise to Abraham. The inheritance is the new earth. For God's people, those who trust, who uh, stay true to God's ways in the world. Now, uh, one of the places where we get the most hung up and we've had the most trouble theologically is in this notion of the passing away of the first heaven and earth. Uh, What does this language of passing away of the old order mean? Does it mean God is just going to scrap everything and start over? Everything's going to be burned up? Um... We also, I think, sometimes we tend to talk about this is why we can't kind of think about heaven as a place we're going that's way up far away somewhere um, beyond the stars where the earth will be left behind. But if we pay attention here, that's not actually the biblical image. Uh, God isn't scrapping the old and throwing it away. Rather, God is taking the old things and making them new. So, did you have a comment there? Okay. Um, so there's a process of renewal happening. Um, so something, there's something new, something re- uh, being renewed. So there is cer- certainly a shift. So, uh, for instance, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more sea. If you remember in Genesis, the sea represents chaos. The night represents chaos. There's still chaos in the good creation that's meant to be, God gives it boundaries, but it's still there, right? The sea is still there, night is still there. And God's ministers in Eden are meant to expel chaos from creation. That's part of our vocation. Now there is no more chaos. It's been removed. So we're not going to have seafood to eat? You know, I, I'm sure God will be very creative about ways to make sure... We, our, our palates are... We better eat all the shrimp now. We better eat all the shrimp now. 
so, so in the new earth, there will be no more chaos. And the picture we have is God coming to dwell and to fill the, the whole earth. Everything is holy to the Lord. Uh, we have uh, an image of this in Zechariah that I really like, that even the pots and pans will have the mark of holiness. So there's this sense of all things will be filled. Uh, so we can think of the new earth as being liberated from bondage rather than annihilated. It's not burned up, scrapped, thrown away. It's made new. It will still be a place that we know and enjoy. But this time we will enjoy it with God. And uh, there's this sense that we'll also be doing something. There's a dynamism here. It's not just standing around in the clouds, singing and playing harps, right? Um, there's this kind of, there, you know, something that we see in Genesis is that God creates for this dynamic emergence. We see images of that here in Revelation as well. Um, that The dynamism doesn't taper off. It, it expands and explodes in a way that's hard to capture in language. But I think we can anticipate a kind of creativity even in the eschaton that projects through eternity. Um, if you, you know, we've referenced C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia series several times. It, in the final scene, this is, a, I guess, a spoiler, I should say, a spoiler alert. Um, one thing that they experience when they're in this kind of something like this dimension of the new heavens and new earth is there's always the opportunity to move further up and further in. There's this adventure to, to have which I think is a really appealing way of viewing what will happen to us because we are sort of made to crave that kind of dynamic emergence. Um, we see an image of that in Revelation 5, this, that we will be singing new songs. There will be something new, something, something for us to learn, new every morning. And in that sense, our vocation will still continue to enhance and to grow but it will no longer be to expel chaos because there will be no more curse. Uh, there's also an image that there will still be diversity. The nations still exist in chapter 5. So there's a lot of debate about what that means, but one thing that most everyone agrees upon is that there is diversity in the new heaven and new earth. And so um, that's one reason we celebrate diversity now. Uh, we embrace it and delight in it and learn from it. Um, it's one reason why it's good to get to know each other in our diversity, to welcome diversity into our communities, and to travel and explore and, and uh, just enjoy how distinctive humanity can be, right, at every turn. Uh, but I, I just want to emphasize that this notion of continuity. Um, God says, Behold, I am making all things new, he does not say, I am making all new things. Uh, so we can unpack any of that that you would like to, um, and we can also take this time to review the five acts. I'm curious what stands out to you, Matt, that we need to... I have one question. Um, about the point. Yeah. And this is, this is a way, on what you said and thinking about way I've already always thought about heaven. It seems like maybe on the cloud. It seems that there are three basic questions that we always tend to ask about heaven. 
that may or may not be well informed, but they persist. And, and one of them is <coughs> is where is it? Another one is when is it? Another one is, is how? How is it? What's it like? And it seems to me that, you know, I'm thinking back to elementary school day. A lot of times the, the where is it question is really concrete and really practical. You know, is, it, is, it, is it up there? And after Copernicus exploded the old universe, that got to be really hard to answer. Because if, if the earth is not the center of all created things, then directions become difficult. And you've suggested that heaven is, is not there, that it's here in some way. Well, it will be the new heaven and new earth, which will overlap. So we'll be fully dwelling with God and one another in shalom. So, But that overlaps with that second question. So when is heaven? Is, is heaven the thing that's going to come at the end of time, whatever that is? Or... Is heaven where my grandmother and grandfather are now, but not here? That's, that's that other question we have. And part of what you suggested is that heaven is sort of here already, although though not yet. And, that's a, and so the, the question is, it's, it's now. And then that comes to my third question, which, which you suggested. What's heaven like? You, know, you and I both teach literature, and one of the great medieval works is Dante's Inferno, or Dante's Divine Comedy. It's a story about essentially what hell is like, what purgatory is like, and what heaven is going to be like, paradise. A lot of people read Inferno, and we teach it all the time because it's great. There's all sorts of really scary stuff in it. Purgatorio, most people don't read, but it's okay. Almost no one ever reads Paradise because... In Dante's image of heaven, there is no time. And if there's no time, nothing can happen next. Which means nothing can happen. Which makes it really hard to tell a story. <laughs> and that's the moment students begin to fall asleep. But that's a way of thinking about heaven. It's different, I think, than from what you've suggested. If, if heaven is not all of us floating in the clouds, singing hymns again, then what is, what is it that we expect? And, and if, it's, if it's already here, sort of, then how can we recognize those moments that are heavenly, literally heavenly? And how can we appreciate the fact that the promise has been fulfilled, that there is a new creation in the process of being made? Is that, is that a fair... Yeah. Um, you know, when, when this stuff comes up... My, in my classes, I almost always give my students the answer that frustrates them the most, which is uh, a lot of this ends in mystery. We don't know. We just really, there's only so much we can know based on what scripture gives us. But I think um, what I would say, especially about the when is it, the, the kind of already and not yet, um, I would want to emphasize that um, it, the not yet, because uh, it's good to celebrate the already. Christ reigns. Um, God has accomplished this effectively, but it has not been made complete. 
So, uh, you know, you can think of that in terms of, um, you know, if there's a if there's a battle happening, the forces of good have taken the strategic position, but the forces of evil have not yet been expelled, right? So there's a real battle or some sort of agonistic struggle that's still happening. Um, so I don't want to underestimate that because I think when we talk too much about experiencing heaven now, we can think that we've really messed up if we don't feel that way, right? Um and yet, I think we can also, part of our sanctification is cultivating the vision to see the world this way, to see the pots and pans as already having something of the glory of God, right? saying something to us of that, which is that sacramental vision, seeing God's presence in all things around us. So um, I think that's important. I also think we can experience something of hell now as well, right? And uh, falling out of communion with God. So... These things are progressive. I think we could kind of think of it that way. We can progressively experience more of the reality of heaven. But we will not be established in it um, in a kind of complete way until this future, this, this future that will kind of be an inbreaking of this new reality. Um, in terms of the, the where, I think what all we can do is say what Scripture tells us, which is that there will be this renewal happening where heaven and earth will overlap. So... It will be here in some sense, but it will be a very different kind of here. Um, and it, it will be such a different kind of here that, you know, it, it boggles our imagination to try to grasp what that means. But the good news of that is that if we love the earth and we love our life here and we love community and we love to eat shrimp, right? Um, something about that reality will be preserved. It won't all just be gone. Um, you know... The dogs go to heaven? I mean, in this image, sure, right? There'll be something preserved of the good that we love here about the creation. And then the how is it, again, it's just one of those, I don't know what I missed Randall said there's no cats. No cats. <laughs> I disagree with that. Uh, but the, um, again, what... So much of this is that the how is it is we can only look to scripture and, and these kind of images that scripture gives us to invites us to imagine, but it's that we know we will be fully living with God. We know we will be surrounding the throne, praising the Lamb who was slain. We know we will be together as a diverse people. So we just have these sort of promises, these invitations, and that's about all we have. We don't have much else. And so the mystery of where, where do we go when we die, I think we can trust that we're taken care of by God. How does time function after we die? Who knows? So, so just to be clear, <coughs> you're not at all advocating a, a riff on John Lennon's there's no heaven, there's no hell. <laughs> there is a heaven and there is a hell. Imagining what they're actually going to be like is a challenge. But it's not a question. It's not yeah. a question of whether or not they, they are. The challenge is, is, is exactly how to imagine the mystery of those words. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> and the question of hell, uh, if I had read through verse 8, we would have gotten into that. <laughs> but at your advice, you said maybe not. Not for Christmas. For Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but... 
I love talking about hell. For anyone else who wants to, after class, we can hang out. Yeah. Well, the, the handout is, is kind of our way of giving you a, um, if, if this were university, this is your study sheet for the final exam. So, <laughs> to remind you of, of what we studied on those days and weeks you might have cut class. <laughs> but it's, a, it's our way of sort of trying to, to frame what we've talked about over the last um, 15 weeks or so, partly for reference and partly to give you a chance to, to make sense, hopefully, of, of what we've tried to do. And what we'd like to do at the, with the rest of this class, although it's not enough time, is to, is to ask you some questions or, or give you a chance to respond to some of the, the concepts that we've tried to, to sketch out. Um, and any kind of response is a valid response. For example, um, of those, I'll use the academic language, of those units that we covered, which ones did you find particularly thought-provoking or not thought-provoking or, or challenging to accept? Yeah. My big question is, St. Peter's going to grade us on the curve. That's a great academic question. Yeah, that's good. I think I've got an 8 out of 10 out of a big 10, but I'm not sure. Well, it's like Lauren and I have been dealing with, is a B good enough? That's good. That's a good question. Far back. You can still sense a uh, presence in in some way. Yeah. This is kind of a question, but maybe I'll get music and see that people believed in the body of resurrection That's actually a, a big concern for a lot of people still. Like, should I be buried or cremated or what happens if I am or, you know. Um, I, it's another one of those issues that all we can do is go back to what we see here and trust that God is going to be faithful to this promise, I am making all things new. So um, I don't think we have to be anxious about our bodily integrity, you know, um, because we all return to dust eventually. And so there's this promise of out of that dust, God will recreate us. God will remake us. But we won't be, it won't be an entirely, again, the old reality won't be just completely done away with. That's what we're promised. There'll be some sense of con continuity with the old reality. And so I think that's one way to think of it. 
That's a really good question, though, because it, it's an example of how, even if you don't think about these things consciously, all of us, all humans, sort of have an idea about what happens next. And it's complicated. Mm -hmm. and I, have, I have friends, I remember the, a friend of mine who's a physician, and I mentioned to him one time, we were like 20 years old. And I said, no, I think cremation would be fun. He was utterly shocked. He said, no. I said, what's the deal? He said, that messes up the bodily resurrection. And I, and I never realized that for some people that's, that's huge. Mm -hmm. Archaeologists, for example, recognize huge shifts in culture that you can mark because of the way different cultures change burial practices. In my field, in, in early medieval Europe, archaeologists hate it when Christianity comes on the scene because people quit burying their loved ones with stuff. All you get is bones. Right? You don't get huge um, King Tut kinds of treasures. Does that make sense? It's, it's kind of a silly example. But, but it is an example of, of how we think about what comes next, whether we're Christian or not. That, that's part of what concerns us as humans. And as Christians, the answer is complicated, I think. We've tried to simplify it, and almost every time we simplify something in Christianity, we can go down an unusual path. But that's, that's a really good example. The other one that was mentioned about feeling the presence of those we love, which for some of us feels too spiritualistic and not rationalistic enough. It's hard to ignore that Revelation talks about the saints still being somewhere, still paying attention. And maybe this is a way, and this is another way we try to come to terms when we lose those we love. Where, again, my question is, where are they? Are they here? If, if heaven is real, then there's, they're somewhere. They're not gone, gone. And I, I bring that up just as another one of those points of contact between people who don't ever think about theology and big theological concepts. Mm -hmm. it, it, <coughs> theology touches our life in all sorts of ways, um, even when we're not even aware of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. I thought it was, I've never really thought about what often wrestled with how did Christians do some of the things we've done throughout history, and it helped a lot to. At the very beginning, we talked about discerning the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but removing it from the true purpose of it to mm. make us like Christ. Yeah, yeah, good. So it made you feel better and separated. Right. I'm glad that was helpful. I, I found that helpful as well to think about um, because the Holy Spirit can become very abstract and sort of like this force for good or something, you know. But when I think about the, the purpose of the Spirit is to form creation into um, a place where it, it is a kind of hospitable for God, and that for us means Christ-likeness, then the clue to what the Spirit is doing is always Christ. Yeah. Um, I'm just kind of interested in kind of when Scripture speaks to like the whole idea of you know, death in heaven, mm -hmm. but also kind of going, well, wait a minute, the fact that we die is kind of part of the fabric of being human, mm -hmm. so we transcend death, is that, are we becoming demigods, is that, or is, is the idea of, you know, death 
figurative idea of, you know, uh, is that even when we die, it's okay because it's not like your spirit is just dissolving into nothingness. I mean, can you speak to that? Is that... Um, so the, I think where that question becomes interesting is is our finitude kind of linked to our identity. You know, it is, is part of why we enjoy the world so much because it is changing and passing and, you know. Um, so I think, again, it's another one of those we have to, well, all we can do is go back to what Scripture tells us in a kind of, these, these kind of invitations to imagine a new reality. But... One thing that seems clear throughout Scripture is that death is not God's intention, not God's final intention for us. So um, death seems to have been present in some sense even before the fall because Adam and Eve have this awareness of it in the way they say, you know, the serpent says you will not surely die. She knows what that means, you know, um, in the story. So there's, you know, some theologians say maybe there's some sense in which... um, our vocation was to expel death itself from creation. So when we fell away from God's ways, we fell away from that possibility. But it seems like there could be a sense in which the role that finitude and death currently plays is part of moving us into relationship with God, kind of by by virtue of our finitude. And so what we have is a promise that that will be accomplished in such a way that death is no longer part of the equation. It's the final enemy to be defeated by Christ. (laughs) And so um, there's what I find here that's really lovely is this image of newness, renewal, um, dynamism without the death part of it. So all the things we love about finitude without the, the kind of threat or the constant sort of uh, cloud hanging over us of our impending doom, you know, that, so yeah. Um, Matt did not pay me to say this, <laughs> but I want to thank y'all for offering us such a rich and beautiful um, class that's been so um, filling for me about just how complicated but also amazing God's messages are to us and how real they are and how mysterious they are. And, and I, I love that you have allowed us to embrace all of that. And I very, very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for um, letting us do this. And I wish Josh were here to receive that. Thank you, Mary. Let's end class um, today with a prayer, partly because I forgot to pray for the prayer requests. <laughs> But if you would, let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again for this, this time that you've allowed us to be, uh, to be conscious of our fellowship in your kingdom, which is already here and which is coming. Um, thank you for those promises and thank you for that mystery, Father, even though sometimes it frustrates us because we want to know. Um, we have faith in the one who knows and we thank you for that gift. Father, as we leave, we want to be mindful of those um, who need your special care and concern. We pray for the Hudson family, Father, and their loss. We pray for Ron Miller. Um, We ask that you would um, stabilize his health and bring him back to full health, if it be your will, Father, and give comfort and grace to his family. 
And we pray for the Gills as they journey halfway across the world, Father, for your kingdom. May they find another piece of the kingdom there that will enrich their hearts and fill them with your spirit. And may they bring part of your spirit from Australia back with them to this place. And Father, that's what we pray for most of all as we leave today. We ask that you would make us mindful of how your spirit, the spirit you gave to your son and which he asked you to give to us, shapes us for service in your kingdom every moment that we are here. Let us do nothing to deny that spirit, Father. Help us to pay attention, to see that you are already here. In Christ's most holy name we pray. Amen.